everybody. Good morning and welcome to AV Daybreak. I'm Mark Friend, who's also a host, but not a co-host, Jared Hellman. How are you, Jared? Neither co-host. Yes. Or we're equally co-hosts. Yes. One of the two. Yeah. See, but that's what I tried the first time, but you got, you got, a, little, you got a little upset about it. And so it's I'm like, when everyone is a co-host, it. nobody is a co-host. <laughs> it's like the poster uh there's a poster they're this company called despair inc they make the demotivators right the opposite of the success right posters and they have one with a snowflake that says individuality and it just says remember you're unique just like everyone else <laughs> i always like i always like when i see irony like that like um <laughs> megan megan dada has um she's got like one of those desk calendars i think and that yeah. in every have you have you seen her post these she posts pictures from time to time of like yeah. today's event and it's like just the most negative <laughs> ever but yeah i think i think one of my favorite ones on the despair one is this it's this ship that looks like the titanic you know just going down in the water with its butt up in the air and yep. uh it says uh maybe your purpose in life is to be a warning sign to others <laughs> 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 that's that that's makes, like this podcast that good. exactly like this, this podcast, podcast is a warning to others it is it's like it's uh it's a warning to everyone out there that two guys with a with a laptop and a set of headphones can be very very disruptive to your day <laughs> yep <laughs> for sure well hey we we have uh we have a calling guest today so i'm gonna call i'm gonna call our guest do you know aaron peterson from mechdyne you know, I, I, I know, I, I know him obviously from the, the Twitter verse yes. um, and just from the AV side of the, of the digital world, but I, I, we, we've never met in person. Yeah. I think, I don't know that I've ever talked to him before today either. So cool. I mean, I've seen him on Twitter. He's, he's prolific on the AV and the AM by, by name drop Chris Netto. Yep. Sure. <laughs> well, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's, Dial up real quick. Aaron. Hello. Good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing well. Like it's, it's California. It's six o'clock in the morning. It's dark outside. Um, you know, but, but this is AV daybreak. So that's kind of the whole thing. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> well, hey, well, hey, man, I really appreciate you joining us. It's, it's funny. Mechdyne is a company if, for people that don't know Mechdyne out of Iowa. Mechdyne is a company I knew because um, my brother-in-law worked for an aerospace company uh, here in California in uh, Palmdale. And they had some really cool, they had a really cool uh, playground. They called it the Sandbox but they mm -hmm. used it to invite um, DOD people into their office and kind of share a lot of the R and D or new planes and things that they were doing. And Mechdyne had done some of the work in there with, especially with the, uh, the large scale blended projection, um, which isn't an easy thing to do. So I was, uh, I was always, I was always a fan before I knew anybody that worked there. Yeah, we, uh, that is kind of our typical bread and butter is kind of some of those VR, large VR systems, um, those showcase systems that a lot of 
our clients bring in their clients to show off some of the stuff they're working on for, uh, for them. So whether it's a, uh, like they said something for the DOD or we've had auto manufacturers work, uh, come install systems from us, uh, energy companies will do some high end, uh, control rooms, that kind of thing. So a lot of those specialty spaces. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. Well, if you've listened to this show before, we don't, we don't let, we don't let people do autobiographies. Jer- Jared and I, we, we like to go through your LinkedIn profile and, and write our own story of Aaron Peterson. Um, and so I don't know, I, I don't know, Jared, I don't know if you've pulled up uh, Aaron's LinkedIn. Yep. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. <laughs> I, I have. Yeah, I, I had to because I knew you were going to make me look bad with your big aerospace i know who mechdyne is you know (laughs) brag story (laughs) yes so so i'm looking here and i'm as i'm looking back you know we look we talk about av and people coming from all all sorts of backgrounds and as i'm looking back here you know he wasn't a bishop an archbishop at his high school like you were jared (laughs) but 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 he did get into sound and light way back way back when way back when it looks like it looks like mr peterson had had the the early beginnings of an av person through through doing some uh, sound and light probably on stage i would guess yeah it actually stems back um so my brother actually who's six years older than me he got wrangled into doing sound at our church when he was in high school so when he was doing sound I would literally sit next to him and just kind of hang out. And I noticed him turning on and off the reverb channels as songs started and ended. And then he started teaching me about gain structure and EQ. And as I sat next to him at the board and watched him do that and watched him turn knobs and stuff. And I started to listen to it and got into it. And then he graduated and went to college and I kind of took over and, um, yeah, it just kind of started way back when. That's that's real. That's cool. Go ahead, Jared. So, speaking of doing AV in school, I don't know why I just thought about this. Arch, but, Archbishop um, was Archbishop Hillman an AV person? No, I, no, I, I, I wasn't. But what's funny is I was watching a show the other day, and uh, it was. Uh, it was, it was, it was law and order. I was watching law and order and uh, classic. Right. And they were investigating some stuff at a high school and they were working with a, uh, and this is a, this is an AV, an AV jam. And they were working with the uh, abstinence club at the high school. And uh, I think it's John Mulch is one of the detectives. And so in the background, <laughs> He says, what do you mean abstinence club? And he goes, or they said, yeah, we, we have to go talk to the abstinence club. And John Mulch goes, oh, he's like, we just called that the AV club when I was in high school. <laughs> oh. And so I just yeah. thought that was so funny. But, uh, you know. And then did, did, did he get the two beat, the two beat, dun, 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 take dun, off dun. his sunglasses? Dun, dun. That's in, <laughs> come on, that's, that's, that's NCIS. But, uh, oh, that's with, right, CSI. So, so Aaron's one of the few, or Aaron, are you telling me that you're one of the few that actually – started somewhere educational in AV and then grew into an AV professional? Well, yes and no. So I've, I've ran live sound and stuff growing up 
And then when I went to college, I didn't actually think AV would be a career. Um, right. So I went into engineering and actually the reason why, so my degree is actually in aerospace engineering. And the only, the main reason why it's in that is because at Iowa state university, they had a specialization for acoustics or it was either acoustics or harmonics. I think was actually what the specialization was, but then was pretty much as soon as I declared that specifically as my major, that specialization moved to like mechanical engineering or something. And so I was like, well, I'm already started down this path. I might as well just finish this. And so I just finished my degree in aerospace rather than moving again to a different degree. And I figured, well, engineering's engineering. I'll probably get a job doing something like that. But I had no idea that it would bring me back to AV years later. That's, that's crazy. So when, you, when people say it's not rocket science, you can actually confirm. I, yes, I confirm that. I, I have a degree in rocket science. And uh, that is not, in fact, rocket science. <laughs> I, I, do, I do have a question about something I, I can see on your LinkedIn here, Aaron, though. What's that? What I'm wondering is, what if I wanted to discover things with two AV systems? Because from your LinkedIn profile, you're only good at enabling discovery with one AV system at a time. You can only handle one at a time. But if you're using <laughs> two at the same time, isn't that essentially just one big system? Am I doing it wrong? Uh, well, you see that? It if you're doing it in two separate systems, it's only just going to be confusing yourself. Like what if there's an issue with one, like if you could just combine them together, you can troubleshoot it all at the same time and figure out where your issues are. Yes. So see, Jared, if, if Aaron oh, Peterson comes into a room and there are two AV systems when there should really just be one, he fixes that first. So he doesn't ever has to worry about the two. First issue, two systems. Okay. Yes. Well, Got look, it. I'm not an aerospace hat. engineer, okay? I wouldn't know that. Engineering hat on. <laughs> first, first, we're turning these two systems that should be one system into one system, and then I will run that one system to the best of my ability. So I, I like that approach. What is your role at, at, at MechDyne, Aaron? What do you so do there? I currently am one of the solutions engineers, so it's basically pre-sales engineering. So when the account managers are talking with a potential client, they'll bring me in to actually talk with them and figure out what kind of equipment they need, what kind of pricing and stuff we're looking at or your, your sales guys can't do that. Um, <laughs> some of them are better at it than others. <laughs> you don't want your sales guys just designing the system themselves and telling the client what it will and won't do. Uh, I would prefer them not to do that. <laughs> That's this, fair. This was a, this was a topic of conversation on, on uh, AVN AM a couple weeks ago, right? Where uh, there there were a couple people saying, "Man, if if you send my salesperson in to do just the thing, like just just don't even hand me the piece of paper when you get done. <laughs> like I don't even want it. I didn't do the site survey. I have no clue what's going on in there, and I can't do anything with it. I I I um I can actually I guess uh, identify with Aaron on this one. I will say my my take was especially for companies like ours, Jared. Um, you know, that are small. A lot of times I had to do that. In fact, I had to even create the bill of materials yeah, down to the, sure. the, the mod plug, right? But um, they were not 3D Viz VR, you know, yeah. 
stuff that stuff that Mechdyne's doing. So I could I could kind of see where there'd be a wall, even for me, where I would really want somebody like Aaron <laughs> with see. me if I was doing doing something that that high end to make sure that I wasn't missing something goofy. You know, I I win I win way more bids when I don't involve an engineer. Yeah. If I just if I just provide a, a spec list myself of, of materials that I think should do the job, I'm oh, always yeah. I'm always lowest bid. I'm always <laughs> now, but after throughout the process, yeah. is, it, is it profit? Now, the yeah. other end? now, now I need the uh, how do I actually make this work drawings done? Yeah, yeah. And what Jared didn't mention, Aaron, was he's he's also zero GP, if not negative margin. Yeah, it's he fine. doesn't involve the engineer. Hey, look, the point He's is, I won. Up. He made the sale. This is about winning. Sale. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So how do you, how do you find getting information from your sales guys, Aaron? And, and you don't have to speak specific to it, but I've always enjoyed the relationship between engineers and sales because it's, it's almost like you have three different languages that are being spoken, right? You have your client language, mm -hmm. your sales language, and then you have your engineer language. And you, and, and in those, in, in the seat that you're in, you're probably really relying on and, and maybe not, I guess, if you're at the if you're at the actual discovery meeting, but you're really relying on the translation of your sales guy, right? And so, how how do you find how do you find that relationship? Well, so what I personally like to do is I'll usually get a background from the account manager, figuring out what overall the client's looking at doing. But I try to actually get the end user on the phone. I try to get okay. I try. To to get a call with the three of us or if on their end if it's whatever stakeholders because usually especially our systems are usually fairly large usually it's more than a single room owner so if there's other people that need a buy-in of what the final system is going to do we try to get them all on the phone and like try to negotiate almost what overall the system needs to do what kind of bells and whistles does it need to just be a computer hooked up to a projector or do we need to have laptop inputs? Do we need to have some conferencing in some of these systems and actually trying to get more of that functionality into the system, you get a lot more um, people trying to buy into the system that like, yes, a lot of these are expensive. And so a lot of some, some companies can't afford it by a single department, but if we can make the system flexible, that more, Depart more than one department can use it, then we can they can maybe pool some of their budgets from different departments and yeah. maybe end up with a better quality system for everybody. Yeah, I've said this. I've said this before, and and uh, I think it's a really smart point that you made, Aaron. Is that you know many times, many times we we're, we take this kind of single channel approach through IT, and you know we're competing with the new laptop upgrade grades for the year and new wireless access points, you know, our budget is competing with that budget that of other projects they have to do. But many times, like you said, these systems are being used for, you know, if it's a big, like you're talking about 3D biz, that's being used to market the company, that's being used to actually generate revenue as a sales tool. And all of a sudden, you know, there are other stakeholders, the CMO, the CTO could be involved, the CEO may even be involved at that point, because it's, it's relevant to the success of the business all of a sudden you start to bridge gaps like, okay, well, we have a million, we have a million dollars. It's just in four different buckets. So, you know, let's, let's do content through marketing. Let's do 
the actual structure through facilities. Let's do the equipment through IT. Let, I mean, I've seen those happen that way before. And um, that's a really smart, that's a really smart point that if we can start to unite or kind of expand, where's the system being used? Number one, we have an increased chance of closing it because all of a sudden they find the money. But number two, um, becomes very complex and somebody like you needs to be involved in that for sure. And you met, you were talking about facilities and like for a lot of our systems, we usually issue what we call our facilities packet that tell us or that tell the client, we need you to add power here, here, and here. And we yep. need, if you want your system to function the, correctly, we need conduits from here to here. And sometimes like if it is a high end, I'm going to say a conference room type thing. And we say you need to have conduit from the table to the wall for whatever reason. And if that particular room has a cement slab, sometimes that can be extremely costly to people that, well, we'll just use a cable bump and that's good enough for them. Okay. That's fine. That's we're just trying to provide you all the options. Yeah. 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 Infrastructure becomes something tricky. Um, I'm, I assume you even probably work more with facilities, even for just isolating things, especially, you know, dampening projectors or things like that, because in a, in a blended, in a blended world, any, any movement becomes, you know, amplified, right? Yeah. And especially when you have, when you're talking projectors, when they're in the same space as the actual clients, um, projectors that we're dealing with, it's not uncommon to be almost 50 decibels of noise. Yeah. And so we have to either put them in an enclosure if they're in the user space, or we'll do a lot of rear projection systems to try to isolate that behind the screen. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I've, I know we've, uh, Jared, you talked about different languages. So <laughs> me, me with my, with my four, with my four fact finding in my Colby bridge, I'm, I'm, I'm a bridge communicator. Jared is what they call me in Colby in your Colby index. Yep. So it's it's interesting because like what you said, the, the client has one language and one set of perceptions. There's obviously an engineering answer to what, what happens. And then I'm typically the guy giving the uh, giving the analogy as I watch what I what I hear what I see. So when I'm looking and I know this isn't a visual podcast, so I'll describe it. When I'm looking at the room and the customer is slightly to the left and my engineer is slightly to the right, I see the difference in the head movements as I'm giving this kind of forced analogy of how something's going to work in the room, the customer starts to nod because they start to get the concept I'm trying to tell them. As I see the engineer try not to shake his head left and right as he un understands the, the small gaps between my analogy and what's really going to happen. <laughs> so you get this, I get kind of a nod on one side and a shake on the other. Um, it's a pretty cool effect. I, I don't know what they call that. How long, Aaron, how long, how long, how long have you been doing pre-sales engineers, pre-sales pre engineer work? I've been doing the pre-sales work for about two years now. Um, okay. Before that, I was on the delivery side, the post-sales engineering for about five and a half. So, um, I, so. I, that's, I saw that on your LinkedIn. Yeah, I saw that you did your post-design work before uh, you were late. You, it looked like you were a lead there. So um, when you changed over, were there some like, and, I, and I'm just speaking from my own experience, but was there some learning curve for you to understand that um, you engineer, the engine, it, it's kind of a two-way street between engineering and sales, right? Sales needs to achieve something with the client. Yeah. 
And engineers have to, they have the responsibility of delivering that. But in the middle of that is meeting budget, meeting timeline. Um, and, and, and there are sacrifices on systems and sometimes engineers don't like that. You know, so was there, was there some learnings, was there a learning curve for you when you went from post design work to pre-sales design work where you had to start understanding that, okay, yeah, we have to kind of give some cost options here or uh, stuff like that. Yeah. And actually you bring up a good point, especially at Mechdyne, we're so used to some of these extremely high dollar systems and we're used to dealing with equipment of a certain caliber. And when we get wood on the delivery side, when every once in a while, when a project would come down that was trying to meet budget, sometimes projectors maybe wouldn't have the warping and the blending functionality right. that some of the lower, that some of the higher end projectors do. And so every once in a while on the delivery side, when those projects would come in, there'd be some grumbling and we would make we would get it to work, but sometimes things take a little more finessing, a few more hours for installation than maybe the extremely high dollar projectors would have. But in the end, it's managing the customer's expectations. And that is a crucial thing that I've had to learn because like, even if I give a client a good, better, best. I have to be able to explain to them why is one better than the next. Oh man. And the old good, better, best. That's well, that, yeah. The old good, better, best. I love those. And my favorite is like when an account manager is like, Oh, let's just give them a good, better, best. And that my question is, well, which part do you want me to do a good, better, best on? Cause I literally could do it on the projector, on the scaling, on the audio system. And yep. It seems to me like, especially, so one of the things right now that's kind of crucial is obviously video conferencing and quality audio to me is super important. Although it feels like some of our clients are spending tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars on a video system, but then they're putting in hundred dollar speakers in a room and that's the first line item cut or do we really need 10 speakers in here to get the proper audio coverage? Can we do it with less? Just, yeah. And it's just kind of interesting for me to learn about that and that the sales world. So I have a question for you, Aaron. And uh, you know, as we're going through your LinkedIn profile, I noticed you worked early on in your career, you worked as technology salesperson at office Depot <laughs> at radio shack. And my, my favorite description, merchandise execution associate. I, I, I think I could be one of these. You didn't like um, the sell cell phones? I like that. I, I liked the sell cell phones. So, oh yeah, sell cell, sell yeah. cell phones. The, how, how, much did your, how much do you think your retail customer facing experience has helped you as a pre-sales engineer now that you're back kind of interfacing with customers? Do you, do you look back on that and and say, wow, right. all those, you know, those years being in a store, people coming in, different, different backgrounds, different knowledge levels. Especially you know, you in retail. That, yeah. Do you think <laughs> that played a, plays a key role in your success in doing what you're doing? It definitely played, I definitely learned a lot. Um, so what, after I graduated, um, I graduated in the wonderful world of 2008, 2009, during the wonderful recession that existed. And there were a lot of experienced AV or uh, 
engineers out there on the market for aerospace and other mechanical engineering. And so me coming into the market with zero experience and not exactly the best GPA in the world, um, I ended up moving back home to the Twin Cities and worked at uh, Radio Shack for a while. And I'll be honest, I actually got fired from that, uh, from that job because I couldn't, I wasn't pushy enough to sell cell phones. I, I probably knew the most about anything else in the store, but because I, my cell phone sales weren't up to their level, I was let go. And then I ended up working at Home Depot for almost two years. And that cut that face-to-face customer interaction of just learning how to talk to a client and like how to sell them something. Now, what I'm doing now is a totally different level of sales. And yeah. it's something, it's something that I personally am trying to learn, even, even though I've been in it for two years, there's people that have been in the sales world for 20, 30 years. And so I feel like I'm still new to that market and I'm still trying to learn more about it. And every meeting I have, I get more and more comfortable with it. Um, but yeah, just getting in front of a client, figuring out what their needs are is how is very crucial. And even in the retail sales, when, so in the, uh, when I worked at Home Depot, I was in their electrical department. So I had to figure out what type of light fixture did they want? Do they need a ceiling fan? What kind of features do they need in a ceiling fan? Does it need to be outdoor rated, for example? And a lot of people I've learned when they're looking at light fixtures are looking at the fixture itself, but not really the quality of light that it produces. And, and so I had to keep reminding people of, well, you're looking for light for your kitchen. You're probably not going to want a bunch of spotlights casting shadows all over the place. That's yeah. like what you just described. That's like a, that's like a, that's a great zoomed out view of an AV system to a customer. They're just looking at the way the light looks. They don't care about what you like. And that, and that's what we find with, with customers is they, they don't, they don't care about the lumens of the projector. They don't care about, you know, the, the range of the speakers, but they do care that when they come into the room, that system works and that's it, you know? And so that's it. I like how you drew that out of, of working at Home Depot too. And I'll tell you, you were probably one of the most helpful people at Home Depot in my experience from the sounds of it. <laughs> yeah. The, well, what you said, what you said, George is exactly right. Like mm-hmm. yeah. people, people don't care about the lumens of the projector, but they do want a bright, clear, high contrast image. Right. And they will that care about may, those things when they experience yes. bad ones. Exactly. Like yeah. they don't care that it's, you know, they don't care if it's two speakers or eight, but if I can put eight speakers in and keep them at low volume and keep the space from being activated with all sorts of reflections. And now all of a sudden they can actually hear somebody, they care that it was eight speakers. Right. So like in the, yeah. in the beginning, you know, the, the technical, the technical reasons we've picked a product, the customer doesn't care about so much um, unless you can relate it exactly to, to what you're coming to. And this is where I guess I get, I get a little tied up sometimes and people disagree with me and that's fine. I get a little tied up sometimes on, you know, um, I disagree. Yeah. I knew you were going to disagree on, on, um, you know, I like standards, you know, I like, I like starting and saying, Hey, we're going to need at least 30, 30 lumens a square foot, you know, on this or we're going to need at least this to maintain a contrast ratio. We have to have that in order to start to pick products in the background, right? Yes. Um, 
but I'm also, I'm also bullish on just because the customer signed off on a 10,000 lumen projector, if they come in the room and the image isn't, if they don't like the image, if it, they think it's washed out and low contrast, then some of that I believe is on like, did we set the expectation of what that's actually going to look like? But right? that's, you know, that, that is one of the advantages of starting with standards is, in my opinion, is that if you, you start a design with standards, you're protected yeah. all the way to execution, right? Because even if, even if, like you said, okay, stand, the standard says you need a 10,000 lumen projector in this room because of this, this, and this, mm -hmm. and the client says, we, we don't have the budget for that. And you say, okay, we can save if we, if we jump down to a, a 6,500 or a 7,000 lumen projector. However, this is the impact it will have. Are, are you okay with that? You know, and, and it's not a good way to go, but at least you've started with at what, what is needed to be delivered in that room and work yeah. backwards. Right. So I, I, I guess I'm more on this, Jared, let's, let's say, let's say you've, you've said you need this 10,000 lumen projector and they go, well, what about this 3000 one? That's half the price. Well, this is why you need the 10,000 lumen one. Great. You know what? I'm going to trust you. We're going to go with that. And yeah. then they walk in and say, wow, that really doesn't look as good as I thought it was going to look. Now, where are we at with the customer? Because we gave the 10,000 lumen spec, we convinced them to spend the money and maybe the result is still not where they needed it to be. And that's, that's where I get a little tricky. Like, is that all us? Is it all them? Do we bear some partial responsibility? Um, and this is why I think the on-site demo, I'm going to give my commercial for the on-site demo. <laughs> the on-site yeah, demo I know you love is, the on-site demo is invaluable in these spaces because if I show up, with a projector and I go in the space at the time of day and I throw up a screen and I say, here's 10,000 lumens or here's what I actually do is I say, here's 50 lumens a foot and here's a hundred lumens a foot. Oh, wow. We could never get away with 50. Okay, great. That means you're going to need X amount of projector to get that effect that you just saw on the screen. And I can do that demo with one projector just by moving it back and forth against one screen because I can take, do that quick math and say, okay, if I move this thing up to this throw distance, I'm getting about 50 lumens of foot on this piece of material I put up. If I move it back twice as far with the same throw distance lens, right, then I'm actually going to get less lumens per foot, even though I'm overscaling the screen. Don't worry about that, Mr. Customer. Don't worry about me filling the screen. Worry about the square I'm telling you to look at and what that looks like. And so I kind of got good at saying, all right, you need more light. Let's move this thing up. Hey, we're a foot away. We've got like, we've got 10,000 lumens per foot on the screen outside in sun. And guess what? You still can't see it. Right. <laughs> so maybe we should be doing direct view LED. I know you didn't like the price of that, but I'm just showing you, we could throw $50,000 in a projector, light up a one foot by one foot square, and you still can't see anything out here. We so I, I don't know. I'm a big fan of the demo just to set the proper expectation with the customer. We just did a demo actually with a client recently and they were debating between there's we're talking about a bunch of different spaces and they were debating between projection and even just an lcd video wall and so we ha partnered with uh, a projector manufacturer and we got a video wall and we got a projector and we actually got some direct view leds because in one in their lobby they're looking at a really coarse pitch direct view led option the reason why they're looking at such a coarse pitch is because the price point. Yep. And so we showed them like, 
we brought to their place uh, this LCD video wall and everybody that saw it over next to the projector immediately realized, oh, we need to do an LCD video wall instead of just a projector because we have a lot of natural light in our facility. And then also we had the coarse pitch direct LED and we're looking at like 10 10 millimeter pixel pitch, which is basically a glorified light show. And (laughs) and immediately they basically said, yeah, anything like that is there's no, that's not acceptable. And, and we said, that's what we've been trying to tell them that they might need to spend a little more money in this particular space to get a finer pitch LED or to get a different technology in there. And so just being in, even it was maybe just an hour in front of the client and immediately they started to see what we've been telling them for weeks. Yeah. Well, so, so the good news is Mark, I don't disagree with you. In fact, on the on-site demo, what I do disagree with though, is that it sounds more like all you're doing is you're lining up the customer to understand the standard and to visualize that standard. Because my thoughts are, if you look at a standard and the standard says you should have a 10,000 luminant projector, according to all of your calculations, according to all the information you've entered, you need 10,000 lumens and you go to the client you're, and you're showing them 10,000 lumens versus five. You're showing them the standard versus under standard. So I agree with that. I, I, I can get behind that, that it makes sense. But if the standard is letting us down, there's an issue that that's my, right. that, that would be my understanding of that, but you are right. An onsite demo at least gives the client something they can understand. Oh, that's why, Oh, that's, you know, that's why the standard is the way that it is. I'm, I'm personally, I'm really big believer that a standard is a good starting point, but it yep. shouldn't be, it shouldn't be the catch all for everything. And one of the things that I always go back to is the standard on screen size. And for many years, Avixa did the four, six, eight rule. And they recently went back to more of a percent element height type based approach. Although if you explain that equation out, you end up dividing by four, six rate. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. It ends up being 200 times 0.0 or it's, it's a point. 02.03.04. 02.03.04. And yep. so you end up dividing by four, six grade anyway. But yeah. throughout practice, that at least that I've learned is it's actually not one of those values. We've actually had a lot better success with going with a value in between four and six for the vast majority of our like conference rooms and that kind of thing. That so for five. just general viewing, we've we've been liking five for a lot of things and at least starting with that and it's it's been working really well for us but guess what that's not in any standards but that's just the practice that we've been doing well so think okay if i might uh add to this the thing about what i what i what i talk to or work with my team on standards is to me standards remove um subjective opinion and when you're training new new people into the industry, they you're like Aaron, like you just described, everything you just described is all based on, I'm assuming a, a collaboration of years of experience. But if you have new staff coming 
it, the, you're right. It's a great starting point. They have to learn that this is the standard. This is where you should start. And then after years of experience, you're right. You can learn where to sacrifice, where to not hold the standard to, um, to a T, you know? So I, I, I can appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's really important, right? Is that the stand, I like that idea that the standard is a starting point. I think, I think you do meet people too that ask how you come up with the numbers. And I had this the other day with the client, like, how are you coming up with these numbers? And, and, and then I told them, and then they said, Hey, can you go through each of these rooms and, and recommend a screen size for each of these rooms? Cause they had just picked, well, Hey, the, the manufacturer I talked to has 55, 75 and 86 inch displays. So in the you big rooms, you put 86 it. and it's, yeah. And in some of those rooms, they really needed a 140 inch screen to get the detail that they mm -hmm. need. Right. And so all of a sudden they're like, wow, we're, we're grouping, we're grouping rooms by number of chairs, but really that furthest viewer is 10 feet back in this room versus in that room. Right. So they realize that their layouts actually changed their screen sizes. But, but if I had just went to them and said, this room needs a 140 inch screen because they, they'd be like, it's crazy. I don't need a 40, 140 inch screen in there. But if you go back and you tell them exactly what you're talking about, Aaron, like, Hey, this is, this is the standard from a starting point. And then you, and then you start to think, okay, what are they really doing in here? What are they really going to see? Um, then you start to tweak it based on that. I, I like that too. I did the same thing with light, you know, on projection daylight came out with a, a screen sizing. It wasn't really, it was a standard in, in a way that they were teaching architects and stuff. And it was, it was interesting because they were saying, you know, in a 16-9, uh, world, you should be uh, one half the distance to the furthest viewer. So if, you know, your furthest viewer was 20 feet back, you should have a 10-foot diagonal screen. And if you do the math again on that in a 16 by 9 ratio, it falls within that same 468. And it's more towards the 6. You know, it kind of just easily shoots the gap, but it helped teach an architect that, hey, when people are 20 feet back, you don't put a 55-inch display on right. that. Right, like that, that needs to be a 120 inch screen in that space. Now, I, I just, sorry, sorry, Aaron, I just wanna jump in because does, does not do, does this type of mentality towards our standards hurt us as an, as an industry? Because on, on the integration side, we talk a lot about how we, we aren't revered as a real trade, you know, and, and um, it's, it's not the same as like electrical code. So for example, uh, things in electrical code, like, you know, if you have to have a, if you have to have a power outlet at every, I think every 12 feet, sure. I think it's every 12 feet, right? And the reason behind that is because most appliances come with a six foot cord and they want to make sure that you can plug an appliance without an extension cord. That's the code. That's why it, that's where it comes from. So if we don't adhere to standards, doesn't that just leave us as, as I've always called the wild west, because uh, that's that's more of just a guideline, you know, and, and so does it hurt us to not follow those standards as an industry? Well, it depends what you're trying to achieve. So one of the things that at Mechdyne, we, um, we know that our quality is usually a little bit higher than some of our competitors. We have a lot of differentiators that set us apart from a lot of differentiate from a, a lot of other com of our competitors. And so, and we know that our clients are willing to pay for that. Whereas if we have standards that lock all of our quality and all of our workmanship to a T and then the client might say, well, I can just go from integrator A to integrator B 
and the quality is going to be the same because they're all perfectly adhering to all these standards that are set in place where we, I would like to be able to charge a little bit more for our control systems programmers because I know that they are a little bit more skilled than some of the other that are out there in the market. And so the standards locking things in. So from a client perspective, they probably are going to like standards because it holds all the integrators to the same level of quality. Whereas on the integrator side, I would like, I know our level is better than everybody else. And so that allows me to put our price point at a certain point compared to a lot of other integrators that are on the market. And just because, so I don't, so some of the standards that are out there, I personally think that like, I would rather have it be a little more wild west because like I've taken over jobs from other cut from other integrators that have done work that the client isn't happy with. So they come to us and we have to come and fix it. And now we have another client. Our yeah. Mechdyne has like 75 to 80% of our business is repeat customers. It's super high because yep. We know that they, once they work with us, they're not going to go, they're not really, they don't have to look elsewhere. And because we've come in and have fixed these issues that other integrators have had to do. Yeah, you're not, and, and you're not wrong, Aaron. We, I, I say that we're also a company that benefits from loose standards, I would say, because, because of our quality, right? It allows us to. But from, from a client perspective, I could, I could understand why you're right. I think, you, I, think, I think it's exactly what you said. They, a client benefits from stringent standards. They benefit from that because if, if something goes to RFP when they're talking to XYZ company and ABC company, they, they know they are going to get the same, uh, the, the same, I, um, yeah, that, that, I, I don't want to say the same thing because even when it comes to trades that, that do adhere to codes, you aren't always getting the same thing. You know, you have something to go back on them with, you know, Hey, uh, the code says you're supposed to install it this way. You didn't, you need to fix that. And, and you do have some ground to stand on there. Um, but you, I mean, quality relationship, um, you know, communication, there's, there's still a lot more factors that can play in. I, I, this is the thing. I think, I think standards, standards cr can create, can help create a floor of quality that people don't go under. Sure. And then, and that's, then that's a good way. guarantee yeah. a minimum acceptable delivery and yeah. then give somebody the opportunity. Cause we're talking about a lot of different things here, but there sure. are so many nuances and Aaron, Aaron could tell you this for sure. I'm, I mean, more than I could, but there are so many ways to deliver that same standard and there aren't standards for things like, okay, are we doing, we did a, we both built a, a three by three video wall. I fed the three by three video wall with one 4k source and let that video wall scale everything out itself in a daisy chain. Or I provided a video processor that sent 4k individually to each of those screens with a, you know, yeah. a 36 K master piece of content. One's going to look a thousand times better than the other and we both followed a standard for screen size <laughs> right that's, that's so there are so many things in a background that like when you're an expert in what you do you're talking to the client like okay what is this for oh this is for marketing our new car 
I mean, I saw a system, and I'm, I hate to say another company's name here, Aaron, but I'm going to do it anyway. There's a company called Don't BOI Systems or oh, Boy God. Systems. He's, he's right? gone and done it. Here he goes. I, and the only reason I'm saying it is because I'm giving him credit for the demo that I saw that they do. And I know Aaron's company could do this kind of work too. But they had a, you know, they had a 200-inch rear projection screen that had a, you know, like a nine projector stack behind it to get the pixel density that they needed for this 200-inch screen. And you could see, you could feel like visually you looked at the leather in the car that they were showing and you could see it. Like you could see that it was soft and that it had a nap to it. I mean, the, the realism of creating, I mean, they had high end content created by somebody who knew exactly what, how it was going to be reproduced. And there was that coordination between the person who was creating the actual visual assets and the company that was going to deliver those assets through the technology on the, and even knew to the, to the letter what they were going to be using to do it. Right. And that type of coordination between content, the customer's expectation, the, the integrator, whoever's delivering the technology, um, man, there's, there's nothing like when all that comes together. And the, those, the t only times I've been floored is when I've seen those type of projects where all four or five people that were involved, you know, stakeholder wise. And I saw it more on the museum side, honestly, because, you know, you had a subject matter expert that was the curator. You had a fabricator that was building custom set work for the exhibit itself. You had a content person delivering or developing content just for that exhibit. And then the AV company. And when that coordination went well, it was beautiful. And when that coordination didn't go well, it didn't matter how elegant the technology side of the solution was, it looked like garbage. You know, like it's, it all comes down. So I think there's a lot of that kind of esoteric. Sure, we can pick a, we can use a screen size standard and a brightness standard, but you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? Like that still comes to haunt us at the end, even if we're following all those standards, so. Um, I don't know if either of you were at, at the last, inf not this, this Infocom, but obviously the last Infocom that actually happened. Um, <laughs> uh, we partnered with Digital Projection. Um, they asked us to create some custom content for their new high frame rate projector. And so we had a couple people and we developed this space station model that um, three people could have unique um, views of the space station. And so DP didn't really have the best content for it. So they asked us to do it. And we, in the, and we were able to help send a couple account managers to that as well. And a couple of our really high end technical guys that could help explain what does a 360 hertz projector benefit you. And it, it allows the collaboration of having three people look at the same model, but be able to get different viewpoints of the same model. And it was just kind of really interesting to see that happen. Yeah, that's that uh, high frame rate, right? Yep. So, you know, you're what they're doing is they're they're increasing the the frame rate, and then they're actually creating user frames through active 3D glasses, right? So your glasses right. are only on on frames one and two. Um, frame one is your left eye frame. Frame two is your right eye frame. User two gets frames three and four left eye right eye, and user three gets frames five and six left eye right eye. And it's moving fast enough that everybody thinks they're they're seeing 60 hertz. Um, but they all are getting independent views based on where they're standing and what they're looking at um, in the space. So it's kind of like head tracking mixed yep. with high frame rate projection. It's insanely cool. 
right? Like that's a way cool, that's a way cool technology. I think of people walking around in a hangar and seeing a virtual airplane in AR and one person could be looking into the, into the engines while the other person's looking at the cockpit and the plane's not in the room, right? I mean, that's. And that's exactly it. It fills that niche for having the collaboration of everybody physically in the same room, but then needing different viewpoints. Yeah. I, I, I think that technology is ultra promising. Um, you know, it, it is really cool, really cool idea. I know some guys that where I was working before were working on that too, but I know DP uh, is probably a little, maybe a little farther ahead with that, <laughs> with that technology. So yeah, way cool, way cool. I, I love stuff like that. And I think this is where, I mean, I think this is where really like as integrators, like those are the kind of things that even though they seem like very niche use cases, like those are the kind of things that if we can even just bring them to the table as an idea, even if they discount them and say, we don't need to go that far. We don't really need that. The idea that sometimes, you know, when you're driving conversation into kind of these unique places really adds some credibility with client that you're, you're the right people to go with because you're going to bring a lot of options to the table and not just the stuff you'd like to sell every time. And yeah, you know, I think that's a competitive advantage. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but I, uh, when I can catch the customer's imagination and create some kind of, I guess, awareness around the fact that like, you know, we, we are on the edge of knowing what's available out there for you to do that. They don't feel like they have to shop you a lot. Right. Because they feel like you'd bring it to the table if it was out there. Yeah. Like I think, I think that's a, that's it. That's a partner advantage. Um, I know with some, with, with most of our clients, I guess I'm, we're in the same line there, Aaron, where probably 80% of our business is repeat business. And it's because we have partnered relationships with clients that like you said, Mark, just our interactions have shown that almost anything technology related, they'll run by us. You know, anything related to technology, they'll just say, hey, have you ever seen, you ever seen a company do this? Or, hey, have you ever heard of this? Have you, have you ever seen this? Hey, we were at this place and we saw this. Is that something we could look at? You know, and again, um, just because of who we are, you know, look, we're not, we're not good at everything. So a lot of times we'll say, hey, we'll, we'll look into that. And then it might come back to us saying, you know what, we, we aren't familiar with that. It's not something we would provide, but here talk to you know and then that puts us in position to work with that company as well if they want to try and integrate something with something we've already done and i've always said that everybody can't be experts in everything you got to know what you're an expert in and where your limitations are and even actually as individuals in this industry like you got to know what your own personal strengths are and what your own personal weaknesses are and no one to ask for help Um, I've always said that there's always going to be someone in this industry that's smarter than you. And you should always keep an open mind in this industry to, to always be learning, always be figuring out, like I said, what your shortcomings are and try to learn from those that have a better idea and what's going on. Every Wednesday morning, I'm reminded that there are people smarter than me, Aaron. (laughs) Mark reminds me every Wednesday morning, every, every Wednesday, (laughs) every, you know, I think it goes back to the, uh, you know, I love the saying, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I, I love that um, saying. And I, I, I have worked at a lot of places where there was no doubt that I was not the smartest person in the room and I have no problem with that. And it, it's been that for me in my, in my 
boxing career, it's been the same, been the same thing, right? Is like, I like training with people who, who I can't hit. Like I just do. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, and I, I remember small, small victories when I was first learning, like I got to get in the ring with some guys that had belts and had titles um, in my gym. We had four of them in my gym. And, um, you know, I would come out of that. I would come out of that experience and be like, uh, did you see that? Did you see that? I'd be in the corner. Did you see that? He's like, what? Like I hit him. He's like, once <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's the first time. Like I'm, I'm winning. Um, Gotta start I somewhere. That, I think that helps us. Right. I mean, I think it helps us when we understand that, uh, partnering isn't failure, right? Like, or referring somebody to somebody that can do the job that isn't failure. And it, it takes self-awareness. It takes knowing that all revenue is not good revenue. Um, you know, I heard one time there's a theory on elephant hunting, right? Like going after big clients and with elephant hunting, they say, you know, like a small firm will win a job. Let's say you win a job with Oracle that all the big guys were going after. And they said, typically, if you're the small firm and you're elephant hunting, they said, the reason that you win is because you agreed to do something that nobody else agreed to do. And odds are there's a reason they didn't agree to do it. And you're about to find out, right? Like many times you're about to find so, out. So Mark, you're saying it's, it's not just me that every time when we win a, a, a bid, I, I go, Oh crap. What did I, <laughs> what did I just sell? What did I, what did I miss? <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh, honestly, I think from talk, talking to people like you, Jared, and talking to people who have, Probably, probably like Aaron too. He probably has these same, these same feelings. I have that exact same feeling. I'll tell you. Yeah. I think for people like us who are so tied to the success of the project, like I take it as a personal insult. If the customer is not happy with what we did, like I will 100%. not sleep. I have a yeah. job that I didn't do well 12 years ago. My first commercial job ever working for a residential company, nothing I could have done to change it. And I know we this was a conversation we had, uh, but, what was it? A couple, a couple of podcasts ago, you and I talked about bad jobs and mm -hmm. Hey, actually funny enough. So an update, an update on the one bad project that I spoke to on that podcast, um, where we're going back and we're updating, a bunch, we're going back a year later and we're updating a bunch of stuff in the system to, to try and bring the client to satisfaction and renew a service agreement. One of the things we're, we're eating as a cost is we've gone back and said, the equipment rack we spec'd and that used is too small. It's too tight, and it's hard to service this rack. So we're we're literally going to pull that rack apart on our dime. Mm -hmm. We're bringing in a new, larger rack so that we can properly service this and it and it functions properly. And and that that's like you said, Mark. I took it personal that the client was not happy with the way that the system was. And even then, I mean, even at my own discretion, I wasn't when I walked into the uh, to the rack room. I was like, oh God that does not look good. We gotta, we gotta do something about that. So you're yeah. talking about standards and stuff and like there, obviously there's a cabling standard that's out there and yeah. how to properly cable manage a rack. And yes. one of the things that our installers have pushed on is they like having the extra depth in the back of a rack to ensure all the cabling is properly cable yeah. managed. And so this is one of the things that being on the delivery side, I can, I know that that's a need. Now on the pre, on the pre-sale side, I make sure I have enough budget in my, in my job so that our, our engineers and our installers have the proper 
accessories that they need to properly cable manage a rack. Typically yep. the racks we're dealing with, we are almost exclusively buying the 36 inch and the 42 inch deep racks because our racks have PCs in them. Our PCs are usually 28 inches deep. And then you add a foot from, for cabling after that. And it just, you need that extra depth. Yeah. I think those are, I think those are all, you know, all the things that, like you said, we find out as again, where the standards standards plus right, Aaron. I mean, that's the standard plus um, that we, in order to do the quality work that we want to do, provide the level of service, like you said, Jared, that we want to be able to provide long-term, you know, like we don't want to dread coming in here and fixing something because we know we got to fight through the back of a rack that we can't unplug anything or, or find cables to because we didn't have the space to manage it. And yeah. And building in those costs up front and letting customers know, like, you know, the reason that we do this is because when we come in here to fix something, it's going to take us a half an hour instead of two hours. And, you know, if you're, if you're all about uptime, you know, if you, if you have to have a service call already, that's already an inconvenience that the system's down and somebody has got to come fix something on it. Yep. But this just means that we can get out of here in the, in the in most efficient amount of time to get problems fixed and, and move on. And I think, I think those are all super important, super important things. Well, guys, I, as luck would have it, I actually have a 7.30 call this morning, so I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to wrap us early. I think we could talk with Aaron all day, Jared. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the general discussion in the industry is, is especially, especially when you, like I, I, you guys are more on the engineer side than I am. Um, I mean, I'm just on the side that tells the client, this is how it'll work. And I just make all those promises for you. So um, you know, it's good for me to, I think it's good for, it's good for the sales side to have a really good understanding of that, of the engineering feats, um, that come with standards. Right. So yeah, yeah, we could go forever. And I think that, I think this, this, uh, conversation for anybody who, who made it through, thank you. Number one, um, <laughs> the, uh, I think this conversation like reiterates why when I was, you know, when I was on the manufacturer side, um, working for Milestone and working for Barco, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of integrators, I supported about 300 integrators across the states that I had, you know, the biggest, the biggest ask they ever had of me is like, if you know a really good engineer, we need one. Like all the time, you know, it was, it was yeah. more than sales. It was, it was either an engineer or project manager, honestly, but um, so many times people ask me trying to help them source talent. Like if you know somebody good, that's not happy where they're at, like we, we need them so bad. And I think, um, I think figuring out how we take, take the standards plus this is a whole other conversation for later, Jared, but <laughs> how do we take the standards plus we talked about this a little bit with Keenan last week about adult learning and knowledge transfer. What we need to figure out is how to take the plus out of, out of people's heads like Aaron's and be able to like within his own organization, how do we take that plus from you, Aaron, and get it to the guys who are coming in who don't have the plus yet. Right. And that's, yep. that's a mystery to be solved, but we'll have to do that another day because I got to go. And it's, it's been an hour. <laughs> it's been an hour, believe yep. it or not. And uh, Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, man, that was fun. Thanks for having yeah. me. We, we really enjoyed it. And for everybody listening, join us next week on Wednesday for AV Daybreak.